We are making our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through that wonderful New Testament book. So much to come about what is called the rapture, the second coming, and how we should be living in light of that. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at the verses that precede all of that. And let's ask the Lord's blessing. We'll be picking up in verse 1 of chapter 4. Now, Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that the Word of God comes from heaven. It is divine. It is God-breathed. It does not have its origin in any man as you have taught us and as we have experienced quite clearly. The Word of God is powerful. It transforms us. You speak right at us, just like, just like you're talking just to each and every individual here. God, it's just a wonderful thing. So we do pray that the Word of God that sharp two-edged sword would come and pierce down deep and, and do some healing and some correction and some comforting and encouragement, especially with the subject at hand. Lord, we just ask for open hearts for you to do your work. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, you know that old joke that says, uh, what does it mean when a preacher says, and now in conclusion... Well, the answer, of course, is not much, <laughs> because usually the message goes on a little bit longer than you would think after a guy saying in conclusion. Well, in our defense, all right, simply when we say finally or in conclusion, we're just signaling, hey, we're aware that uh, maybe we've gone a little long and the, the runway's in sight. Uh, we, we'll, we'll be at lunch very shortly. <laughs> And, and so it happens, right? Uh, but Paul the Apostle has been accused of doing that. He says, finally, and then he goes on for two chapters, uh, very much, well, let me show you right here. The first verse says, finally, brothers, well, what comes is going to be two full chapters and not in conclusion. He's really getting now to the crux of the message. I mean, how to live in light of the Lord's soon return. He's going to talk about the rapture, the second coming, and, and how to live with that in mind. And so, uh, of course, Paul has got a great excuse, doesn't he? I mean, the word in the Greek there for finally has a broader and wider meaning than the word in English, finally. In fact, loi pan in the Greek is used to kind of note a transition, a major transition, and it really means at last uh, uh, and now for the rest, as for the other matters, and as the NIV, actually the new NIV has it, as for the matters uh, to come. And so that's the thought there, and he really needed a strong transition, didn't he? I mean, what was chapters one, two, and three about? His past visit, he had to do some mending of fences, as we call it, because he had uh, accusations hurled at him, a lot of slander. So he spent three chapters trying to uh, assure them of his great love, to remind them of evidence of, of his integrity and their dealings there at Thessalonica, where he had started the church. And so one through three is really about defending the ministry and assuring them of uh, Paul's love for them. That's where the finally comes in. So now he's saying, uh, finally have reached the place uh, where in this letter we can move on to what I wanted to write to you about in the first place, which is how to live in order to please God in light of Jesus' imminent, imminent of course means any second, right, return. So how do, we, how do we live knowing that at any second the trumpet sounds and boom, we're, we're going to meet the Lord face to face. Uh, it's important. And so the finally now in this case means, okay, he closed, remember last week with this, he, he defended the ministry, defended the gospel, assured them of his love, explained why he hadn't been back, which was a big offense, right? And then he closed with this heartwarming prayer. And then he says, finally. So in other words, uh, Let's talk about what this letter is all about. And verses 1 through 12, just so you know, are going to be, if you want to please God, number one, keep your passions in check. And number two, manage your personal private life well. And who would have ever thought that self-management skills 
are very important to our Lord. And so uh, let's take a look at the whole passage for this morning. Those two things, watch for them. You'll find them, verses 1 through 12. Finally, okay, let's move on, brothers. (laughs) We instructed you while we were there with you how to live in order to please God as, in fact, you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen, who don't know God, and that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God didn't call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction doesn't reject man, but God who gives you the Holy Spirit. Now, about brotherly love, we don't need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, modern day Greece. Yet we urge you brothers to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, unbelievers, and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. Wow. All right, so that's going to be our passage for this morning. Now, uh, you could go ahead and start with our verses 3 through 8, which we will begin with. But let me tell you the thesis statement. I used to be an English teacher, uh, so uh, it's my joy and privilege to bring out the thesis statement in this paragraph. All right, didn't you hate that? Uh, Oh, man, and I was the object of such harassment. Um, You know, the thesis statement is the umbrella sentence under which everything in the paragraph has to come. And so here it is for both sections. Uh, He's saying it is God's will. And, you know, you often wonder what it is. Well, here's one answer, one aspect that you should be sanctified. This is God's will. And, and the first part of that is going to be defined as keeping your passions in check. The second section will be sanctification defined as managing yourself in your private life to have it together as a Christian person who knows God. And so those are the two areas that we're going to take a look at. Of course, the first one being keeping uh, your sexuality in check according uh, to the design that God has uh, given us. And so uh, these are important areas because they're listed. There are a lot of areas that God could say, hey, I want you to be sanctified. And remember the word sanctified is to be made holy that every part of our life comes under the sway or the influence to reflect God's character and purpose in, in, of our lives. So think of it this way. To become holy or sanctified is like you throw a pebble in a pond of still water and there are those concentric circles that are ever-widening. The process of sanctification is when God starts the pebble goes into the heart. And then throughout your life, those concentric circles of waves of the Holy Spirit brings into conformity every area. And the first area, and he gives it a lot of ink, more ink than the second. The second goes faster because there's more to talk about this. Why does he go out of all the areas? He could say, hey, let's talk about this area or this area or this area. Oh, he picks the area that is most troublesome to them and usually to all fallen people, human beings, uh, as we struggle in this regard called moral purity. So last week, we found out what pleases God when it comes to Christian service. So when you're doing stuff for God, the bottom line is that it should be 
strengthening and encouraging others in faith. That makes God happy in Christian service. What about my private life? Does that count? Oh, yeah, it does, because those circles include your private life, right? What did Paul say he was concerned in 1 Corinthians 9? He said, I do, knew, I do not want to have preached the truth to others and then myself be disqualified for the prize. Oh, that's going to happen because Christians know the truth and, and they're trying to strengthen and encourage others in the faith. But if your life is a mess, what good is it? What good is it? That's called hypocrisy. I mean, we don't have it all together in every area, and there's always one area we're all working on, right? It doesn't mean we can't say anything because we're not perfect, but boy, you know, if your life is a mess and you think that God is honored because you're telling people the truth, that this passage is for you, all right? And so he's going to start here now with, uh, he's really talking about um, sanctified sexuality. He's talking about, now he says, learn to control your own body to keep your uh, passions in check. Now, there are a lot of passions that we have to battle, passionate for greed or selfish ambition or what have you. These particular passions, of course, you've read the verse, are sensual in nature. Now, the good news, he always likes to affirm them in the beginning, doesn't he? And he says, hey, you guys are doing well. You're pleasing God. Uh, but you're enjoying a good measure of success. But, you know, the Christian strategy for healthy living and Christian maturity is more and more because there's always an area of improvement. There's usually two steps forward, three steps back. That's very normal. But if your strategy is I'm constantly more and more, never satisfied, you've never arrived, always pushing forward is what the Bible calls for. He says, you know, First uh, Peter or Second Peter, rather, Peter's talking about attributes of the Christian life. He says goodness, self-control, faith, knowledge of Jesus. Then he says, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 8, he says, for if these attributes are present in ever-increasing quantities in your life, they will keep you from being unproductive and ineffective in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 8, ever-increasing. The chart of your Christian maturity ought to look like up, up, up graph. More and more, more and more. Never happy, like, hey, flat lines. Flat lines are bad, especially if you're in the ER. You know, you don't, <laughs> you know, hey, I'm doing fine. Everything's stable. Let's just keep things stable. No, that's not biblical. He says, pedal to the metal, the world, the flesh, your own sinful nature, the devil. They never let up. Therefore, you can never let up. You can't just say, oh, okay, batten down the hatches, got things done, everything's okay. No way. 10 seconds in the wrong place at the wrong time. One swerve. Oh, you may survive the crash, but your life will never be the same. One swerve. That's all it takes. That's why the Bible makes so much sense. More and more. More and more. Hey, you're doing great. You're pleasing God. More and more. <laughs> That's why. Because you just never know. You just never know. You have to be very careful. So he says, keep up the fight. These are things we told you about in your text. You can follow along. These are things you're currently doing. Now I'm reminding you to keep on doing them. Don't even think about letting up at all. And so here's the, as I've been calling it, sanctified sexuality. Um, here's what he's saying. Our human biological emotional promptings need to be properly expressed in the confines of God's design of heterosexual marriage. That's very simply put. So here's what he's saying. Number one, he says, avoid sexual immorality. Let's take this apart. It's always helpful to kind of take the words apart. Awkward. Awkward for me to have to stand up here and talk about this. Thankfully, tonight in your home fellowship groups, it's meet and greet, and no one's open in the Bible to this passage, right? What a can of worms. Hi, welcome. 
So what about the sermon did you resonate with? Uh, what? Uh, I don't think so. So few, you know, but you can pray for me because I've got to open the can of worms and kind of talk about it. So let's do that. I mean, the word for sexual immorality is an ugly Greek word, pornea, where we get the uglier English word, pornography. And um, what it originally meant uh, was to sell off or to surrender the goods, which you have no right to do because they're not your goods to give away, as he's going to point out. So that's the word there. The Old English word, the King James word for sexual immorality is... um, not pretty either, fornication. And now that came from a Latin word, which simply means under the archways, because that is the place from where the solicitations were made. They stood under the archways. So people knew where they could go for that kind of illicit uh, behavior. So in English, sexual immorality or fornication or pornea, all the same, is the umbrella word for all sexual sin outside of heterosexual marriage, any sin. And, you know, I'll spare you having to list them all, but there are quite a few, but you all know what they are, right? Last service, I said something, but I don't need to tell you guys that. And it was like, if anybody would know, it would be you guys. I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> uh, but we know. We know what they are, you know. And sometimes the Bible interchanges those words, adultery and fornication. And, and they just swap them around a little bit because it's all, all, all it is is a transgression of God's design. That's simply what it is. So, He says, avoid sexual immorality. Now, avoid, I think, is kind of a funny word to say about something so serious, you know? It's kind of like, um, you know, avoid, you know, something I, I think of in lighter terms. But the word not only means a prohibition against it and a call to abstain, but it also is giving you wisdom of how to do that, to avoid the whole opportunity. Right? So you avoid it by not going near it. I like what Eve told the devil. Or when she said, he said, did God really say you're going to die if you do this or do that? And, he, and she said, yeah, he did. He said, don't eat it. He said, don't even touch it. Don't even go near it. Now, a lot of people give her a hard time about that and say, she's adding to the word of God. How do you know? Were you there for the whole conversation? Just because it didn't tell us every last word God said to her means that she's making stuff up? No, it makes perfect sense that God would say, don't eat it. And Eve, you know what? I know what's going to happen. Don't even go near it. Because if you don't ever go near something, you're never going to do it. This is so biblical. Proverbs chapter 5 about adultery. He says, keep to a path far from Temptation, do not go near the door to her house. I love it again, Proverbs 7, along the same lines. I saw among the simple-minded, I noticed among the young men, a youth who lacked judgment. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along the direction of her house. Take another way. There are other ways around. So, Avoid sexual immorality means avoid the person, avoid the thought, avoid the flirting, avoid the little game playing that starts the whole deal. If you keep a good distance between the opportunity or the spark, then that spark's never going to happen because you never get close enough. It's those who like to kind of get close enough, but oh yeah, we did, well yeah, you, you know. Did you understand that? <laughs> Unfortunately, you're all like, yeah, we did. Uh, so now, put negatively, this is saying, thou shalt not sin sexually. Put positively now, in the next verse, he's going to say, thou shalt learn to control thy bad self. All right, so. <laughs> if ever we should add the adjective bad, 
It would be here. So learn to control your own body in honorable ways. Well, what, oh, this just reminded me of Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, where he said, the marriage bed, the marriage, marriage and sexual intimacy is undefiled. It is honorable. All right. So what does he mean by conduct yourself sexually in an honorable way means to have a healthy and happy marriage. Listen, listen to uh, David Guzik's remark on that verse. Satan's greatest strategy when it comes to sex is to do everything he can to encourage sex outside of marriage and to discourage sex within marriage. It is an equal victory for Satan if he can accomplish either plan. So the Bible says that a happy, healthy marriage is one means to avoid uh, sexual immorality. So uh, let's talk about this learn to control your body uh, business. Uh, overcoming temptation 1A. Maybe some uh, proper understanding of some basic theology about who we are would help. Paul's implying here where he says very clearly in other passages, your body belongs to God. Therefore, you must control it in ways that honor him because he owns it, right? Uh, here, I have a passage that he says it a little bit more directly, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know, don't you guys realize, your body is the housing of the Holy Spirit. If you got saved, the Holy Spirit came inside of you, and you're like the church building. He's in there, whom you have received from God. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. And what price is that? The shed blood of the Son of God. God the Son, the second person of the Godhead's blood, redeemed you. The word, if you say, I'm redeemed, you know, it's kind of an old school word, but it means to be purchased. I've been bought with what, dollars? No, my ransom payment wasn't made in blood because I needed to die the death penalty, but someone died the death penalty for me. That means a ransom was paid and I, my soul, my body was bought. Therefore, if it was purchased, the owner has the right to tell me how to use the body that is his, ultimately. No one in this room willed yourself into being. You did not decide to be born. You do not control your next heartbeat. You don't even know if it will beat again. The, the, the oxygen in your lungs. Who's doing that? You have no control over that because your owner of the machine has those buttons and controls them all. That's one of the arguments. Therefore, we better do life the way he says because he's the owner. Psalm 100, put it this way. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. We are his. Yeah. So now he says, so yield to the owner, right? Uh, if you need clarification now in the verses, you're watching me kind of proceed through it. If you don't know what that looks like to control your body, not in passionate lust like the heathen who don't have the slightest clue about who God is. Now, in English words, the word heathen and pagan were not pejorative. They were not uh, demeaning words. Originally, they're technically uh, technical words. They just mean or meant people who are ignorant of the one true God and go about life worshiping multiple gods and groping around in spiritual darkness. That's what the word pagan or heathen originally meant, unenlightened Souls who live in a godless way. Well, that's what was going on there all around them. First century Greece. Oh, my word. I read in great detail what life was like for those poor Thessalonian converts. They didn't grow up in, in an environment, Europe, in an environment where there was a Bible, the Old Testament, concepts of a living God with morality standards and Moral accountability, foreign. They, they, they're growing up in, in a Europe that has gods and goddesses who are, are, are lustful and adulterers and murderers. Those are their gods. And they have religious shrine prostitution where you have affairs, where you have mistresses. Nobody bats an eye. 
you get married, but on top of that, it was a normal part of life. And these poor, especially the men and the women, the men, they just all got saved. They're a few months old in, in, in the Lord, and they're living on Las Vegas Strip. You know, they're living with, uh, with Mardi Gras parades going by them every day. And, and, and this is why there's such a plead and, and a passion. They had no understanding of God. And he said, listen, the fact that you see people with unbridled passions is a direct link to the rejection of God and the truth. Unbridled passions... Acting on lust is evidence that you do not know God. And let me give you proof of that. Romans chapter 1. Watch where the rejection of God initially links. Because this is the world the Thessalonians lived in. For although they knew God, everybody has a sense of God. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts darkened. So they... They, they, even though they know that there must be a God, they've turned from him. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds. And they'll worship anything except the one true God. Therefore, watch now, rejection of God, rejection of truth. Therefore, God gives them over to sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. So he's going to make a point here that the heathen don't know God. They've rejected the truth and therefore look at their lives. There are no boundaries. There's no self-control. They're calling good bad and bad good. Of course, because there's no knowledge, but you claim to know God, to have the truth. Therefore, what's that about? I mean, he goes on to say they exchanged the truth I'm taking your truth, I'm going to swap it over for a more convenient truth, a lie, and worship and serve themselves rather than God who is praised forever. Amen. Because of this, and look at it, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Rejection of truth and rejection of God always goes with, well, we're going to do, express our sexuality the way we please because we've rejected the truth. Now, Unrestrained lust is evidence of an unenlightened soul. Unrestrained lust is evidence of an unenlightened soul. And you can tell anybody you want all day long till you're blue in the face about how you know God. But if your life shows that you do not express your sexuality in the one God-given way in a heterosexual marriage, then you are in error. That's the Bible. Right? And so we move on. Aren't you glad you're not talking about this tonight? <laughs> we move on with four quick reasons to avoid sexual immorality. Thank you for that uh, uh, changing of the verse. Uh, number one was just given. You know God, or so you claim, so we expect better uh, for you to do things God's way. And number two, here's a great reason. Very intriguing. Verse six, take a look at that. He says, in this way, I know no one would wrong his brother or uh, defraud him in the Greek language to take advantage or cheat him. What is that about? Let me paraphrase this. Another reason you should watch yourself because the object of your lust, sir, is a human being. And I can say that to a woman as well. The object of anybody's lust, God's saying, watch out. That's a human being made in my image for my purposes. And they serve, all human beings serve a higher and more noble purpose than to satisfy your sinful longings. They are God's creatures. And so think about that the next time you want to click or the next time you want to trespass where you do not belong. That's God's property. And now when he says, you don't want to defraud your brother, check this out. He's appealing to the men, their code of honor, about their future wife. He's saying, you're going to mess with some young lady who one day is going to become, perhaps in the church, your brother and the Lord's wife. 
what, what business of it and what audacity is yours to add to a burden of a future marriage by not submitting yourself to God's design and bridling your passions and your understanding of what you want when you want to have it. It's not yours to have. She belongs to somebody and most likely not you and going to be somebody else's bride. You're messing with your brother's bride. That's something to think about, right? What a nice, interesting twist there. I mean, God thinks about things we never stop to think about. All we think about me, me want, me want now, me no care, <laughs> me see something, me want, go me way, <laughs> or uh, me hurt you. <laughs> That's number two, man. So he's saying, how do you want the man, the men who are around your future wife right now? Oh, you have a future wife. You're a single man? Probably you have a future wife. And if you're in the church, she might be in the room, right? There are the guys around her, sir. How do you want them to view her and treat her, knowing that one day she's going to be your bride? Well, then, sir, you ought to be treating women in the same way. Amen. So he goes on. So if he says, I love this. So if an appeal to code of honor or conscience or just simply to God's presence fails, there's always the promise of God's judgment. So God will punish people for all such sins as you're following along with me. Why does he do that? Well, because he cares about us. He wants the best for us. I mean, when, I mean, when I was young, boys, me and my brothers would play a game called Chicken. It's pretty popular. It takes all kinds of forms, right? Uh, this form was you lay down in the middle of the street, and you see who can lay there the longest without being chicken, right? And the winner, uh, you know, gets the prize of being run over. <laughs> No, the winner is like, oh, yeah, wow, you know, he stayed the longest, right? Because you hear the cars coming around the corner, and you're looking at each other. Who's going to get out? Wow, come on. Any father in their right mind is going to go, son, you can't play that game. If you play that game again, I'm going to swat you, all right? L listen, why, why are you going to swat me? We're having so much fun. It's because I care about you, man. You're going to get killed out there. What do you think there are guardrails up? What a do Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 13 says, these commands that I'm giving you are for your good. You think God's up there saying, let's see how much pleasure we can deny them. On the contrary, John chapter 10, I came so that you might have life abundant and free-flowing, joy-filled, blessing and peace and love, and all good fruit, you know? So our Father punishes with the hope of repentance. He's saying, hey, I see a cliff over there, so I want you to associate this behavior with an owie so that you will not fall over the cliff because I love you. You gotta do things. Use your body in the way that I intended it to be used. Now, came upon this story Thomas Paskowski from the northern Polish town of Elblog. He was helping his wife out by doing a bunch of chores, and one of them was ironing with a big stack of clothes. So after lunch, and I'm just reading from the article, he opened a can of beer, and he started ironing and watching his favorite sport, boxing. And he said, and I quote, I was really getting involved in the boxing and was not really thinking about what I was doing. Suddenly, the phone rang, and I answered, and instead of grabbing the receiver, I picked up the iron and put it to my face. Yeah. Real story. Listen. You get caught up. You get caught up. You crack open a brewski. Not paying attention, there's distraction, you're really excited about what's in front of you. You're not paying attention, but you're not using the appliance 
the way it ought to be. Suggested manufacturer usage <laughs> says, do not press a hot iron to one's face, right? <laughs> do you know how many people out there in the world are answering the iron? <laughs> oh, my word. Oh, yeah. And you, oh, yeah. The thrills are not lasting. But the consequences of answering the iron are. And it's not just a scar that he will bear and he'll always tell the story. But I've been doing this almost 40 years. And I watched people with burn scars inwardly in their mind because they wouldn't use the, the, the body in the way that God had intended it to be. It was not a killjoy. <laughs> He's saying, I will deal with this, you know. And let me assure you, folks, and thank you, you know. Hey, um, when he says he will punish people for all such sins, let me assure you the consequences in this arena of life lend themselves to all kinds of uh, painful modes of punishment. He has a variety of those consequences which God himself will enhance. He will enhance those. Like, did you get that? Oh, oh, oh you didn't? Oh, 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 let me help you a little bit more. And he will use it. Why? Because he's a good dad. You're playing chicken with your life. 25 STDs, kinds of, 25 I just Googled it, and so I know it's true. <laughs> 25? Some of them are incurable, and a couple of them are fatal. Isn't it amazing if we just do it the way the manufactured, uh, yeah, pres pr prescribed way of doing life Oh, the, the, the godly boy and the godly girl who grow up and do it God's way, never worry about those kinds of things. What a coincidence that when you go outside of God's parameters, chaos, uh, uh, guilt, shame, pain, unwanted pregnancies, and then a way to get rid of that. And there are other terms for that word. King David, walking on the rooftop, gets an impulse. Check into this girl, tell me about her. Oh, she's the granddaughter of your closest advisor, and her husband's out fighting the battle that, where you should be. Well, who cares? She's beautiful. Who cares? Avoid sexual immorality. David, you know what's going to happen? Because he doesn't say no to one prompt, one prompt. He's going to ruin everything. He's going to sin against God. He's going to sin against his own body. He's going to sin against her. He's going to sin against her husband. He's going to sin against Israel and his ministry because Israel will never be the same because he'll never be the same because God will chastise him and punish him. And at the end of the story, which is often the case, what do we have? On top of all of that, we have a dead baby. And that is usually the case where these rules are not adhered to. Who suffers? Well, who cares? The baby. I had a student, I was a college teacher, shared the gospel quite openly there, and one of the students actually just said, hey, I'm not going to be uh, in class tomorrow. I need to make an arrangement with you. And I said, what, what, what are you doing? And he said, I'm taking my girl for an abortion. And I said, okay, listen. I want you to talk to your girl, and I want to offer you some money, and I want the baby. And I'm going to take care of that baby. I'll adopt that baby. You can see the baby whenever you want, but give the baby to me. My wife, she's good with this. Okay, and, and he's going, you're, you're for reals? And I said, I'm for reals. Uh, I, you know, just talk to, the, talk to your girl and ask her. So, 
I called Barb. <laughs> and I said, Barb, uh, how do you feel about a half Filipino, half black baby? And she said, what's this about? And, uh, and I, I told her. And she said, two thumbs up here. So I go back to him. I saw him, you know, saw him later. It wasn't, a few, it wasn't the next day. It was a few days. Because I remember talking to him and saying, did you talk to your girl? And she said, yeah, she couldn't believe you would do something like that. And I said, the offer's good. I talked to my wife. Are we good? So he says, I'll get back to you. And then I saw him, the, you know, a few days later. And I said, hey. And he threw his head back laughing. And my name's Reinman, but they call me Rainman. And he laughs at me and goes, Rainman. He goes, too late. Too late, Rain Man, laughing and walking by. Let me just go through the list. He sinned against God. He sinned against her. He sinned against his own body. He created his own child. And then with no caring and with mocking and laughter, reports to me that he was complicit in the child's death. The word for punish there is a very unique word. It's only used twice in the New Testament. It means to avenge. Why avenge? Because there are people involved. You can't behave like that and with a list like that, <laughs> cause all of that grief and pain and transgress all like that and not expect God to avenge. And he says, it is mine to repay. I will avenge. And the word just means to execute justice. Now, if you are the object of God's vengeance, that ought to help you. Fast forward the tape at the prompt to click, gentlemen, or at the prompt to flirt, or whatever your deal is. God knows in a room this size, there's a lot of clicking. There's a lot of flirting. There's a lot of stuff that happens. Come on, let's be real. And think about it. Think. Is it worth it? The thrills, they don't last. But the consequences last. It's a beautiful thing to be able to fast forward the tape and learn from that and say, you know what? I'm going to learn. Let me close with a little hope in this section. The next child born to that adulterous David and Bathsheba union is Solomon, from whom Jesus Christ, our Lord, will descend directly from. What did God say? I see how messed up you are. I see that you can't restrain yourselves. I see that you're well, the most messed up people on the, in the universe. I'm going to come down in the center of the adultery and the lust and the murder and the lies. I'm going to become it. I'm going to choose the union of this terrible adulterous affair and I'm going to become it and carry it all the way to the cross and where I will Die for it. And I will be buried and I will descend and I will raise triumphantly and make a way for every David and every Bathsheba who's ever sinned, every person who's ever taken an iron to one's own face. <laughs> Come, follow me. I made a way out by becoming that very sin on your behalf. So the coast is clear. Your sins are paid for. The scar, it'll remain until you see him face to face. Because you won't see any scars. The only scars in heaven are his. And every time you look at them, if you get a peek at one of those scars, you think, I'm never getting kicked out of heaven. I'm never getting kicked out of heaven. Because he retains those scars as evidence of your eternal security and his great love and his power to redeem you from any sin. Amen? I think we have exhausted that subject. So finally, nice, he, he closes up. He says, hey, it's God. 
who's calling us to moral purity. What, you're laughing because I said finally and I'm keeping talking. You know what? I'll talk to you afterwards. He does say there in the verse, probably burned out the light from being so long. No, the last one. Yeah, he says, uh, therefore, oh, by the way, you know, don't walk out of the, the, the room saying, oh, that's what Paul thinks. Well, okay, Paul, you're pretty much, you know, you're pretty kind of out there, Paul. He goes, oh, oh, no, no, no. This is my idea. I'll make this stuff up. The church, this is the church policy we're pushing down your throat. We're just saying this is coming from God. And if you walk out of here and go, whatever, you're saying whatever to God because that's his will. Amen. Now, for the second part, he says, sanctification will be, and we can go to the, those verses. Sanctification was about keeping your, your uh, passions in check. And now, interestingly, it's about letting love help you manage your personal life. And it goes pretty quick because it is a few uh, verses only. And so manage your social life. Self-management skills right here. Now, he's saying for Christians, first of all, he says about love, you're doing a good job. More and more, but you're doing a good job. And he says, hey, nobody needs to lecture you guys about love because that comes in the initial download. When a, when a person is born from above, God gives the prompt to love other believers. He says, you don't need a lecture on that. You're doing it, but do it more and more. In fact, if you don't instinctively love your brothers and sisters in the Lord, then you've got to question whether or not you actually got saved because it's an evidence of salvation. Um, let me read to you 1 John 3. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. So if you ever wonder, hey, am I really saved? How much do you love the church, your brothers and sisters? That ought to be born in. Man, when I walked into CLC, that first Christian Life Center, Santa Cruz, 1979, 19 years old, coming out of bars and all kinds of stuff. I didn't know anybody except that youth pastor who came to my house. And he invited me to the church. I had 200 friends. They just were there to help and to ask questions and, and, and to give rides and care about me. It was just instant. I was, I loved them the same way. And once they start talking about sharing, listen, we have the same spirit. Of course we love each other. We have the same destiny. We all escaped hell. Phew. We all came, you know, this close. We could have ended up there. There but the grace of God goes anybody in this room to eternal torment. But we share a bond that we escaped that and not because of anything good we did. But for some reason, God saw us and, and, and elected us and called us and convicted us and saved us. And we look into each other's eyes and we see that. Like, wow, same father, same spirit, same love, same struggle, same enemy. And of course, there's just this love that's born that's there with the first birth. You know, let me tell you, at that same college that I referred to, this this love for people you don't know. You find out they're a Christian. You know, passing bell, I'm, I'm changing classes, walking with the masses, and some guy's in my stride with me. So I see him out of the corner of my eye, and it's kind of weird that we're both kind of in stride, you know? And I'm humming a, a very well-known chorus at the time a worship song. Suddenly, I hear him humming, and I'm thinking, what's he humming, right? It's along the same tune. We're humming the same tune. He heard me, and he started humming. So we're playing this game. We're not going to look at each other, right? So we're just walking and humming, but we both now we're on to each other that we're both praising the Lord together. We've, we don't see each other. We don't know each other. Right? We get to the end of the hallway just as the worship chorus kind of uh, concludes, and we stop, and it's like, da, da, da. and we look at each other, big smile, oh, big bear hug, got each other in headlocks. You know, it was just this beautiful thing of, I don't know you, you don't know me, 
but we know the Lord. We're brothers. I love that guy. You know, I don't even, I can't even tell you his name, but we share that. And you can go to India, China, or Timbuktu, wherever that is, and you're going to find the same thing. And he says, you're doing that, but let me tell you. And now for, usually when you hear, now I'm going to tell you how brotherly love works itself out. You're expecting him to say, so if somebody's in need, you give him you give him some help. If he's moving on Saturday and you have a truck or, you know, uh, he wants to pour out his heart, you listen. Yeah, yeah, that's all true. But check out what this brotherly love does. It says, hey, you need to not be a social nuisance in the church. And look at how he does this. Let me explain the background really fast. In the second letter of Thessalonians, he's going to mention a group he calls the ataktoi in the Greek. And it, it's a military term for soldiers who broke with rank. They don't come under. They're in disarray. They're doing their own thing. So they had a problem because he talked about it in the beginning. He's talking about it now. And he's going to talk about it in the second letter. So they're, they're hard of hearing. And, and there are burdens on the congregation in three areas that your verses will talk about. They had a misunderstanding. No, they got the second coming. It's going to happen any second. They misapplied it. They, the Greeks already did not like to do manual labor. They felt it was beneath them. That's why we have slaves. That's what I read. On top of that natural disinterest in working a job, then they heard the gospel. Oh, good. So now Jesus is going to show up. I can't even get through the job interview before Jesus will be back. So there were certain guys who were refusing to work. And with all their idle time, they were fanatics. So they wanted, uh, oh, I'm talking about Jesus 24-7. And I'm going from house to house and house and getting make sure everybody's ready. Meanwhile, everybody had to support them because they weren't working, and they were getting into everybody's business. Hence comes this, and listen to how he's going to address it. He's not going to say, hey, stop being a pest to everybody. He's going to say, you are, this is a breach in brotherly love, because brotherly love will examine my life and its impact on the community. That's what brotherly love makes me sensitive to Either I'm a positive or I'm a negative. I'm a drain, I'm a drag, or I'm a, I uplift. That's a failure in brotherly love here. So he starts out with three smacks, three reprimands. And, he, and, he, and, he, and he's going to say genu genuine brotherly love prompts strong work ethic, personal responsibility, social and financial obligations will be met because of brotherly love. Check it out. Number one, what does he say? He says in verse, he says, make it your ambition in verse 11 to lead a quiet life. Let's talk about that. What a paradox. This is coming from a guy who's accused of turning the world upside down. So he says, hey, make it your ambition. Some translations has this. Make it your ambition to have no ambition. Well, of course, he doesn't mean no ambition spiritually or with your career. doesn't mean that. He means you need to focus on your life, the foundations, the routines, the disciplines that make a life stable, which brings inner peace and rest. From that, you can be very busy doing a lot of stuff. But from your life, there's an emanation of, of wellness, of, of rest, of, of grace, uh, you're not always all this action. and uh, uh, It's really the quiet, well-ordered life that he's talking about. Instead of this high-strung, uh, not grounded, tossed here and there, frenetic, frantic striving, ups and downs, highs and lows, over-the-top emotionalism, he's saying here, you guys need to just calm down and live in God's grace and enjoy his peace and stay busy for him. Listen, structure your life with biblical order and precepts. Get into routine. Lay that foundation. And then do the gospel. 
Just calm down. It's everybody just like that there. So secondly, the second smackdown, he says, mind your own business. Wow. (laughs) When I first read that, I'm like, wow, God, the Holy Spirit. Whew. M-Y-O-B. That's amazing. (laughs) Mind your own business. Here's what it means. These folks in the congregation, these, these fanatical loafers, are, are, are in everybody's business. He says, put your attention where it belongs. First and foremost, on your own life. Your walk with God. Your obligations maritally. Your children. Your finances. Your job. That's your focus first. And if that's in disarray, nothing really matters because you're being more troublesome than helpful. So he says, mind your own business. It doesn't mean we don't look out for each other and speak into each other's lives. We're supposed to share life together, right? But he's talking about that unhelpful, intrusive, inordinate interest in people's private lives. He says, knock that off. Take social cues for what they're worth, man. Social media does not help this at all. And now we got to know every time you feed your cat, you know, uh, every time, oh, you know, oh, what smells good on the barbecue? I mean, seriously, right? I mean, we're just in each other's spaces, right? And that's what it, they were doing. They were overly in people's space. And the Bible says this. I love this. <laughs> Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house. Too much of you and they will hate you. <laughs> Proverbs 25, 17. Let me repeat that. (laughs) Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house. Too much of you and they will hate you. There's another one I like. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice early in the morning, it will be considered more like a curse than a blessing. (laughs) Good morning, everybody. God bless your day. Oh, it's 6.05 a.m., Yeah, you know, no. No texting at 5.30. Hey, I was just thinking, you know, no, that's not good. So he's saying, focus on the things that God has called you to. Uh, Leon Morris said they were so exuberant, spiritually speaking, they were getting involved in the church leadership expressing all their opinions and their various things. He's saying, listen, we all have lives and focuses and God is at work. Take care of your stuff. And the last one is work with your hands. Oh, this is a hard one. And he's going to bring El Smackaroo on the second letter because they ignored him. They will ignore this. Work with your hands. And notice what it says, work with your hands. It says, as we told you, this is the second time. So in 2 Thessalonians, he writes a paragraph calling them out. And he says, oh, about those guys who won't work? Don't even sit down with them. Don't eat with them. Don't associate with them. Let them feel ashamed. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 5. Yikes. Oh, it's in 2 Thessalonians. It's not chapter 5 because I don't think there are five chapters. In the- <laughs> there's, I think there's only three. Right, Pastor Adam? All right, he's being silent. That's probably smart. (laughs) Work with your hands. So he says, listen, uh, you know, you're going to have to get a job. I was talking to somebody, and I'm closing. I can't say it's in the the next three seconds, but I am. I I see the runway, all right? I'm pushing the down. That means I think we're up. Yeah, down. Okay, we're landing now. Listen. I'm at Aromas years ago, and I see somebody doing a Bible study. They don't go to our church, and after we have the conversation, nor would they ever go to our church, (laughs) sir. But he's got an open Bible, and he's got a workbook, and he's doing his thing, and we start talking, and he goes, yeah, I'm doing this program. It's so good for me. I'm growing, you know, all of that. And he said, oh, man, pray for me. My wife and I got into it again this morning. Oh, she is so mad at me. Tell me about it. What's up? 
He says, oh, she wants me to get a job. All it is, all it is is job, 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 job. I'm looking. But she said, oh, here you are going out for coffee. You're going to do your little Bible devotion time. She doesn't know how important this is. First thing, seek ye first the kingdom of God. I said, oh, no. Oh, no, your wife is right. I said, let me show you scripture. You know, and then I turned it. Oh, I love doing this. And, and <laughs> I don't love it in the wrong way. I love it in the right way. I pushed it in front of him and said, this is what Paul told Timothy. If a man refuses to work, it's not that you can't work. That's not a problem. It's that you won't work when you can work. So Paul tells Timothy, oh, the Holy Spirit through Paul says, if a man won't work and provide for his own family, he's worse than an unbeliever. So he started reading it silently. And you know me. I said, please read it out loud. <laughs> so he read it out loud. What do you say to that? I said, bro, here's what you do. You go to Kinko's with your resume right now. You make 100 copies. You pass out 50 of them. And then you stop and you get flowers. And you go home with a big bouquet of flowers and say, honey, you were right. I read the scripture and woo. I've got to do some changing of my priorities. They're living with her father, with their three kids. No wonder she's saying, you're going for a cup of coffee? I'm going to kill you. <laughs> so I said, show her the stack of resumes and say there were 100. There are 50 now because I'm willing to work at Burger King to support you and put some food on the table so your father doesn't have to take care of you because it's my responsibility, baby. <laughs> and then wiggle your eyebrows. <laughs> I said, that'll go way better than coming home and saying, I had the best cappuccino. You know, don't do that. All right, there are two, re two uh, oh, oh, yeah. Let me finish up right here. Twofold reason. It's one verse. How long could this possibly be? So that your daily life will, one, win the respect of outsiders. Outsiders outside, they don't know Jesus. They're outside the family of God, right? So unsaved people are looking in. You want them to be drawn. Those secular Greeks did not respect people who loafed around, didn't take care of their finances, didn't pay their bills. Oh, hey. Where, where's the rest of the money here? Oh, yeah, you know, Jesus is coming, brother. Let me tell you the four spiritual laws. You know what? I'll tell you about four spiritual laws, right? So you want to draw them in. Let me tell you a, a very short 10-second story. <laughs> Pete's across town, a place I love to go. I love their coffee. Iced coffee there? No place does it better. So I'm in there, oh, and I hear the story. Somebody who used to work there to ask their manager, who's your favorite employee now? And the manager named someone who goes to the rock, a Christian young man who goes to the rock. And that person said, you like those Christians, don't you? And she said, yes, I do, because they actually do as they're asked to do with a smile. And so it is my good pleasure to tell you that the person's name starts with the letter Daniel <laughs> and ends with the letter Bernard. <laughs> so we have this young man whose his father and mother served here like crazy people. And he has that same servant's heart. And that's what he's saying. Let people see the light this way. That guy didn't say a word about Jesus, but she's connected the rock, Christianity, with good, hard work, servitude. That's her understanding. And I'll tell you, one day she gets the inkling around Easter, Christmas. I want to go to a, a church. Where does she want to go? Oh, she wants, she's going to want to go somewhere where Daniel goes, 
That's what he's talking about. Last sentence says, so that you will not be dependent on anyone. Well, if, if you need to be dependent on people, you have to be dependent. And to some degree, we're all dependent on each other. In this case, he's saying, when you don't have to be, don't be a burden. Take care of yourself so that you're uplifting, not dragging people down, not being a burden. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this truths, these truths, Lord, that will help us to be a blessing. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray that we could manage our, our passions to keep them in check by your power. That's the only way that'll happen. And that brotherly love will work itself out so that we will be more socially aware of the importance of managing our own lives well. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.